Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor of the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Damon Linker of the Week, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Norman Ornstein, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks one and all, and I want to issue a thank you to Sarah Longwell, who sat in for me last week. I was recuperating from getting the COVID vaccination, um, and yes, it was the J&J, actually, uh, but that's the way it goes. I feel fine. I'm not worried, and um, onward. I'm, I feel lucky, actually, to have been immunized. So um, it's been a um, it's been a very tough week regarding uh, police violence uh, in the city in a in a small town near Minneapolis, uh, Brooklyn Center. Uh, a young man, Dante Wright, was shot to death in what looks to have been an accident. That is, the cop used her weapon instead of a taser, um, but uh, it comes at the worst possible moment with the Derek Chauvin trial um, coming to its conclusion. Um, so, um, Damon, the, um, the trial of, uh, of Chauvin has uh, cast a pall, arguably, over uh, the country. Um, but uh, but these other cases, the one with uh, Dante Wright and another one, Karen Nazario, uh, a, a young army medic who was pepper sprayed in an incident in Virginia, actually, that we didn't know about. It happened in December, but that has just come to light. I, I argued in a column those two were distinguishable. They were not just like Chauvin, but... Uh, but tell me what what your impressions are. Well, I, my view from the beginning about the George Floyd killing by uh, Officer Chauvin has has been, like I think most Americans, uh, that that seemed incredibly egregious. That no matter what drugs he may have been on, uh, to be pinned under an officer's knee for nine minutes. Uh, saying repeatedly that I can't breathe uh, is pretty egregious. Uh, as, I mean, he wasn't armed. He could have been handcuffed. There are any number of things that could have been done to prevent that. He was that actually from... handcuffed through that time while oh, he yeah, was that's, on the Oh, yeah, that's correct. But then, yeah. then the question is, well, why did he have to be pinned at all? Um, right. it, there, there are any number of questions that you could raise about that that make it seem incredibly egregious. These other cases are ugly. Um, I think I may disagree with uh, you and your argument in that column a little bit. I think the case of um, uh, the incident in, uh, it was Virginia? The, yeah, it was Virginia. Uh, the, the, from, from December. Uh, that case strikes me as, as an example that I think is pretty illustrative of of why so many black male, especially male, but any black driver is extremely hesitant in dealing with a police officer because the fact is that for reasons that are probably a mix of racism with training, with perhaps experience on the beat, a lot of police officers are really kind of come into any kind of a confrontation with uh, an African-American in a position of fear. And they expect it to go bad. They expect there to be violence, the person to be armed. And so uh, there is a, a kind of a trigger-happy mentality, I think, on the part of a lot of police officers. And fixing that is, I think, largely going to have to be a, a product of a, of a better kind of training. Uh, but it's, it's a very, very bad situation. And every single time it happens, it's like confirmation of what black Americans have been saying over and over again. And I, all, I'll, all I would add on top of what to me sounds like pretty, uh, pretty obvious response to what we've seen is that I really dread the outcome of this, uh, the Chauvin trial. Um, 
this has happened so many times before the burden of, of proof, you know, in addition to the standard, uh, uh, the standard uh, of, uh, of guilty till proven innocent when it comes to it being a police officer, uh, Americans have a long track record of kind of deferring to the cop. Uh, and uh, I really worry that there could be enough reasonable doubt for him to get off. And if he does, what that will portend uh, for the country over the coming uh, week or so. Uh, apparently, as of this afternoon, uh, the trial is over except for closing arguments, which will happen on Monday, which presumably means deliberations next week. Uh, so there is going to be a verdict uh, before long. And um, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm nervous about it. Uh, Norman Ornstein, um, bearing in mind one's own um, prejudices, and I plead guilty to this, I I feel strongly that, that Chauvin is guilty, that he has been shown to be guilty. I thought the prosecution case, I didn't follow every day, but thought their case was remarkably strong. They demolished the arguments that the defense had mounted. Um, and so I, I – don't really see the reasonable doubt. But then again, with juries, I mean, I, I felt this way about the OJ case, too. <laughs> um, and um, and that didn't go the way I thought justice dictated. And um, it's certainly possible, I guess. But what's your what's your evaluation of uh, of the evidence and the likelihood of an acquittal in this case? So I have to say, Moon, I've, I've had a lot of emotions raised up during the course of the last uh, several weeks, indeed the last year. Um, I lost a son some years ago, and uh, you can't know the pain, the ongoing of losing a child. So mm. I look at uh, the parents, at the siblings, at the relatives uh, in a different way. And I think back to when my kids were teenagers, and they would go out uh, with their friends and when they could drive. And, you know, we were scared to death that uh, they might drink, they might get into an accident. But we didn't, uh, if they were, for example, uh, driving off to go to the grocery store, uh, or even on those weekends when they were out with their friends, think, you know, they could get stopped for a broken taillight and be shot and killed. And that's the reality that uh, the uh, parents of people of color go through with their kids, uh, men and women, boys and girls, every day. You know, uh, I'm from Minneapolis as well, and uh, I grew up, you know, with Minnesota nice and uh, deeply admiring the political figures of both parties back in the day when the Minnesota Republican Party was a model. Um, and, of course, we had Democrats with heroes like uh, Hubert Humphrey and, uh, and Walter Mondale and many others. And yet there's a deep, dark history of racism and of police misconduct in Minnesota, as there is in so many other places. This was clear misconduct. It's hard to imagine one of the few cases we've seen where the police hierarchy actually turns against one of their own. You know, so many of these other cases, uh, the hierarchy lines up behind the bad cops, which is a big problem. And it is hard to imagine that there isn't reasonable doubt here. But remember, you only need one juror uh, to look at it in a, in a different way. If uh, Derek Chauvin is not convicted and not convicted of a serious charge, of a murder charge, then I fear we're going back to where we have been for a long time, which is police act with impunity, uh, knowing that there won't be consequences. And we clearly need reform. And I want to mention a couple of things here. Uh, you know, almost every one of these cases, uh, including uh, in Brooklyn Center, uh, in uh, uh, the Virginia uh, small town, Sandra Bland, um, are uh, ticky-tack misdemeanors, traffic violations, or even non-violations. And you get police pulling people over and ready to arrest them uh, for those things. We've got to change the way in which we deal with these kinds of offenses. For Sandra Bland, she lost her life because a cop pulled her over because she failed to signal while changing lanes without any other cars around. And, you know, if, uh, if that happened to any of us, we could be arrested uh, 20 times a week. So that's one of the problems. Qualified immunity is another problem. And 
one of the witnesses for the defense in this case uh, is known for training police uh, it, by telling them, your life is in danger no matter what, even in routine stops. Use maximum force to make sure you can save your own life. And I understand that the pressures on police and the fear that if you go up to a car, somebody could pull a gun and shoot you, and it does happen. But we know from other experiences in other places that you can train police to de-escalate conflict. You can keep them from hauling over people for small offenses or just make sure they get a citation and you don't get into a confrontation. We can train them in crisis intervention. So many of these cases also involve people with serious mental illness. We had just another one of those uh, here in the Washington area the other day. We know what works. And if we don't move with dispatch to do something about it, we're going to have a problem. And just one last thing. I saw that uh, Rashida Tlaib, the congresswoman uh, from Michigan, uh, said we should just uh, forget about police and incarceration. And, uh, you know, I thought as I saw that, well, if that had happened uh, in January, you probably wouldn't be here to tell us anything about it. We need law enforcement, but we need better law enforcement. Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to go next to you, Bill, and, um, and say that while I agree with almost everything that Norm said, um, I will just add there, there were some differences. So in the case of Dante Wright, um, this was not that the cops pulled over somebody and arrested him for a traffic violation. They pulled him over and then discovered when they ran the plates that he had an outstanding warrant for other what they call gross misdemeanors in the state of Minnesota. One of them was for having an unlicensed or unregistered gun and having waved it around and another for failing to appear in court and fleeing police on another occasion. So. He had an arrest, an outstanding arrest warrant. That was why they were attempting to take him into custody, not because he just happened to be a black motorist that had, you know, made an illegal left-hand turn or something. Okay, so that makes a difference, doesn't it? I mean, it obviously doesn't justify killing the guy, and uh, and the the charge of manslaughter doesn't seem out of out of bounds to me against the cop who who used her gun instead of her taser, but. It isn't. The, it isn't as if he was just pulled over and 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 killed, right? Look, if if your point is that each of these cases is different, uh, you're right. Uh, but I think I think there's there's a larger point here, uh, and that is, in my judgment. It is. It would be possible to do effective policing without the very quick resort to force that seems to be the default setting for so many police in America. That's a function of training. It's a function of expectations. I think it might be useful to take a look at other police forces around the world, uh, include, starting with the UK, uh, to see whether they can achieve good results uh, with more restraint. I'll also make a moral point by way of comparison, and that is there are military rules of engagement uh, which have the effect of increasing the risks for our military personnel in order to reduce the risks uh, that harm will be inflicted on innocent civilians. That's part of the military code. That's part of the military training. And so the, art, you know, the argument uh, that, you know, that the safety of the police is the highest value and cannot by, be diluted with any other considerations is not one that I accept, to be frank. And in the same way that if you step forward and take the oath for military service, you are incurring risks in order to follow the code of military conduct in combat, that there ought to be the same understanding uh, when you become a policeman, that there may be circumstances in which your concern for your own safety is going to have to be diluted in order to ensure or to minimize the chances uh, that innocent civilians or, or civilians who have not been convicted of a crime 
are not going to be uh, summarily killed or injured. Uh, so I think we have a problem of police philosophy in, in this country. I'll make one other point. I think I think the name of the Minneapolis suburb, but we have, you know, we have a a native Minneapolis Minneapolitan here, <laughs> Minnesotan, Minnesotan. No, 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 that's not specific enough. It's my under, you know, it's my understanding that there's a police force of about fifty in Brooklyn Center. Not a single one of them lives in Brooklyn Center. Not one. If that's the case, that's another problem we have to think a lot harder about. Okay, Linda, um, I can imagine that um, people might respond to Bill's points with, with a couple of observations, one being um, that cross-country comparisons are a little bit complicated by the fact that we have gazillions more guns in this country than others. And uh, the police will probably object that, you know, they are often facing armed civilians, whereas that is not the case uh, so much in, in other places. Um, and and second, you know, the, uh, the notion that police have to um, take it uh, uh, take the risk that their own lives uh, may be um, an, in danger in certain situations, uh, that could make it harder to recruit people to be police officers. Well, it leading, may... leading the witness council. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping I'm going to jump in here and agree with everything you said, Mona. I, I understand my no, role. Just, no, just teeing it up. Just teeing it up. Okay. All right. Yeah, right. Uh, right. But, but let, me, let me suggest that I, I'm actually fairly sympathetic to what Bill suggested in terms of this presumption that um, police are given, that whatever they do is, you know, justified by their fears of protecting their own lives. And, and I, I, I watched that uh, tape of uh, Lieutenant Nazario and being pulled over. And as I've said before on this po podcast, I didn't grow up like the rest of you, uh, feeling warm, fuzzy uh, attitudes towards the police. I grew up in a family where the police knocking on the door was a frightening thing. Uh, some of that had to do with the fact my father served time in jail, my grandfather served time in jail. Um, so I was actually quite sympathetic uh, to Lieutenant Nazario. And I must say that one of the things that hasn't been commented on a lot was that the officer who uh, was the most egregious in his interaction with Nazario, his last name was Gutierrez. So he also was a uh, an ethnic, if not racial, minority. And um, one of the things that since occurred... Since fired, by the way. Since fired, right. And I think justifiably so. I mean, I was really... Uh, I, I watched very carefully to see, did Nazario do anything that suggested... Yeah, he didn't immediately jump out of uh, the car when he was told to do so. But I have to tell you, I would hesitate getting out of the car um, at a stop as well. I mean, I think he, first of all, deserved an explanation uh, of why he'd been pulled over, and if he'd been told, well, it's because you don't have your tags uh, on, he could have explained, if you look on the back window, I have my uh, temporary tags uh, rightfully displayed, as they are supposed to be in a new vehicle, and it might have de-escalated. But instead, Gutierrez really sort of pushed him. And at one point, when, when Nazario said, I'm afraid to get out, Gutierrez's response was, yeah, you ought to be. You're about to ride the lightning. Well, ride the lightning means you're about to be uh, sent to the electric chair. So that was, you know, I just thought that was so over the top. And I will say that I think we don't do as good a job in weeding out people who want to join the police because they like being able to have a weapon on their belt at all times and like to exert authority over others. Maybe it's only a very small minority, but you can't have even a small minority of police who, um, you know, who basically want to use their position to frighten people. And so I was, I, I was sympathetic on that one. I think you're right 
uh, on the right case. I think that was an entirely different case. I do think that um, when you end up shooting someone with a gun instead of a taser, you need to be arrested for that. You're, you need to be prosecuted. Uh, and I think a second-degree manslaughter seemed like the appropriate kind of case. But these are three very different cases. But we clearly have a problem with policing in America. I, I, I just don't think that you can have experienced the last couple of years and seen all the has happened to not believe that we are doing something wrong in the way we train police and uh, the way in which um, police view others, um, especially uh, those uh, from minority communities as being potentially uh, a threat to their own lives. Okay, so just for the record, I want to say that truly I have very um, complex views on all of this, and I'm, I am not actually here as a, a defense counsel for the police. In <laughs> fact, I did some research a while back for a column where I was searching out, you know, how often police face uh, death on the job and so on, and I was stunned at how low the numbers were. They're not through the roof, as one might think, listening to the police unions and others who are resistant to any kind of reform. Um, it's actually not as dangerous as lots of other jobs that people uh, are involved in in our, in our society. Uh, deep sea fishing is very, very uh, dangerous, apparently. But in any event, um, uh, so, so I think there's, there's merit in a lot of the argument that, uh, that the police, uh, you know, need to be reined in. Um, that much having been said, I don't know if anybody disagrees with this, but I'm going to throw it out there. The, um, the Democrats um, defund the police uh, uh, slogan is extremely harmful to their political prospects. Does anybody disagree with that? Okay, now we move on to topic two. Uh, the president announced a commission this week that will study increasing the size of the Supreme Court. And uh, the Democrats also introduced legislation today that would increase the size of the court to from nine to 13. Um, and uh, this is, of course, an, a matter that received a lot of attention during the primaries uh, with a number of candidates uh, arguing for packing the Supreme Court. Linda, I'm going to start with you this time. Um, you know, the um, arguably the Republicans behavior by, you know, not filling the uh, Scalia seat uh, in, in 2016, um, not even giving Merrick Garland a hearing, and then, you know, rushing to approve Amy Coney Barrett. It certainly inflamed uh, partisan passions about the court. Um, but even Justice Breyer uh, is arguing now that packing the court would be a mistake. I agree. Uh, I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, it, you know, <laughs> pick a number, 13. Oh, lucky 13. That sounds like a great idea. Um, you know, I, there may come a time when we need to in, enlarge the Supreme Court, but I would argue that that has to be based on caseload and workload and not based on trying to have some sort of ideological balancing on the court. The court is supposed to be above partisan politics. And I think that, you know, we've seen over history that that people are appointed to the court who sometimes we're going to assume are conservatives and who then turn out to be very liberal. Um, Governor Warren is, is an example um, of, uh, of someone who was thought originally to, you know, to be more conservative and then became the great liberal on the court. But there are other, uh, other examples, and it goes the other way as well. Uh, there are liberals that appointed that end up being more conservative than, uh, than people had hoped. This should not be the test. And I think uh, Justice Breyer was 100% right when he said, that this would damage the court and damage its standing with the American people. The court is not there to be an extension of our political branches. It is supposed to be apart from, separate from, uh, and essentially above um, in a certain respect, uh, at least above in a kind of moral sense of, you know, being above petty politics, uh, and, and supposed to be there 
simply to look at the Constitution and to decide whether or not laws um, are constitutional, whether or not they are being enforced in a way that's constitutional, uh, and whether they're being enforced with a way that's consistent with the way the law is written. So I think it's a terrible idea. Biden seemed to be opposed to this idea when he was a candidate. Maybe he's just giving a bow to uh, to those on the left who want it, but uh, I think it damages the court, and I think, frankly, it damages uh, Biden as well. Um. Norm, the uh, some some people argue that uh, by tossing something to a commission, uh, this is a, a great way to buy time. I mean, it's a it's a time honored uh, tradition of of uh, uh, kicking something down the road. So uh, first, uh, let me say, Mona, that um, I'm with uh, E.J. Dion on this and not with uh, Justice Breyer, who I know well, and I've actually had discussions with him in the past about the court. The justices themselves know that their legitimacy is a fragile thing, and they're trying desperately to keep it from being uh, defined in a different way. Um, the commission is not going to recommend, I would guess, uh, an enlargement of the court. If you look at the members of the commission, it includes uh, some uh, very impressive and distinguished conservatives as well as others. I suspect and hope that they will recommend uh, term limits for justices. But let me step back. I would have agreed with Linda if we were talking about this uh, when Earl Warren was chief justice or even when Warren Berger was chief justice. We're in a different world now. The old definition of chutzpah uh, or example, of course, was the uh, kid who kills his parents and then pleads for mercy with the court because he's an orphan. The new definition of chutzpah is Mitch McConnell complaining about court packing. We know that the norms were blown up, not just with Supreme Court justices, but with appeals court judges and district court judges, filibusters of uh, large numbers, a misuse of the blue slip, the broken norm uh, on Merrick Garland and then the shattered norm on Amy Coney Barrett barely a week before the election have imbalanced the court. We're not talking about impartial judges here. We're talking about people who have been vetted thoroughly. Everyone on the list was vetted by Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society. There will be no Earl Warrens here. There will be no David Souters here. And what we have is justices who are highly ideological and very different from what we've seen in the past. And you can see even by some of the uh, dissents now uh, written by Chief Justice Roberts that he's concerned about the ideological turn a little bit, a very, very strong conservative himself. Um, I actually would say that if you, uh, and of course we have to remember that the court uh, has not been set at nine in the constitution. It's been changed up and down several times in the past. Not since so 1869. It's, it's no, been nine uh, since 1869. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, changing it so that you could get back to a point, recalibrating, where presidents would have the legitimate number of justices that they should have been allowed to have, I don't view as out of the question. I'd rather not see it happen. I would rather that we could go back in time and have a legitimate process of nomination and confirmation. Uh, but we've got a real problem with this court. And maybe uh, term limits um, staggered over time would help, although it would take a while for that to happen. Uh, but we have a very radical court now, in my judgment. Uh, Damon, do you agree that the court is radical? I mean, some people might point to the surprise, what they thought was an interesting surprise decision from uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, about uh, transgender uh, people, people who identify as transgender under the uh, um, sex discrimination lawsuits. And uh, that wasn't necessarily something that people expected. Uh, no, I, I don't. Uh, with all respect uh, to Norm, uh, I, I don't uh, agree with, with that. I don't agree with what you described either about the court. And and those who listen to the podcast uh, regularly and my co-panelists here are well aware that on lots and lots of things, I'm very wishy-washy and sort of don't take strong stands on these institutional questions. We've talked recently on the podcast about 
changing the filibuster rules and I'm sort of like, ah, it's probably not a good idea. I don't know, but I don't really care that much about it if they could get away with it. But on this, I, I feel actually pretty passionately that the idea of enlarging the court is is an outrageous suggestion, primarily because it's so colossally, colossally stupid. I mean, the that is a huge escalation over McConnell's prior escalations, which, by the way, were also interspersed with Democratic tit for tat. But the the fact of the matter is, if the Democrats enlarge the court to thirteen, which, by the way, they can't. If you think that uh, Joe Manchin uh, is, you know. Uh, taking a very strong stand against changing the filibuster, just wait till they try to pass a bill enlarging the court to 13. And he's not going to be alone uh, on the Democratic side saying no way. But even if it could happen, you have then set things up so that without an actual principled escalation, the Republicans would simply expand the court to 17 the next time they have the ability. And then the Democrats would come in and do 21. And and actually, before you even got that far, the Supreme Court would com be completely divested of any authority that it has. Um, this is like the ultimate institutional nuclear option, and it really should not be allowed to happen. And as I said, it's obviously not going to happen. FDR couldn't even get away with it when he had massive majorities in both houses of Congress, and it's certainly not going to happen when the Democrats basically have a tied Senate and only a couple of seats in the House separating the two sides. The, you know, the House is is a more left-wing uh, caucus, uh, obviously, just like the Republicans are more right-wing there. Uh, and so, you know, the, they can pass what they want, but this is the equivalent of a messaging bill to try to placate the left wing of the party. And it's not going anywhere, and we should be very happy that it's not going to. I think, by the way, that uh, Nancy Pelosi herself said that uh, she didn't she didn't plan to bring it to the floor. So, yeah. Um, OK, so there's, it, there you I'm go. Not, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Again, right. the Man Manchin will not be the only Democrat in Washington uh, to say no way on this. So. so Bill Galston, one of the points that Justice Breyer made in his uh, speech at Harvard was um that uh, and I and I think uh, uh, Damon or or Norm might have referred to this, namely that uh, the the justices are worried about the authority of the court and the the authority of the court. The Justice Breyer was at pains to say uh, relies upon its esteem uh, that the that it has in the public, and at the moment it's got pretty good approval rating, much higher than that of Congress. In fact, higher than any other institution in American society except the military. Um, and without that kind of approval and authority, uh, the decisions that the court makes are sort of dead letters. If people don't obey the court, if they don't respect the court, then uh, then you're sort of, you're, you're, you're tampering with the rule of law. That's his argument. Um, yes, it is. And uh, I have to say, that having having listened to the speech, uh, I think it's uh, I think it is a speech that everybody who's serious about this issue should either listen to or read the text of uh, before rushing to judgment. Uh, you know, Breyer has been in the thick of it now uh, for a very long time. And I think, at the very least, his cautionary notes have to be taken taken seriously. Uh, as Norm rightly pointed out, there's a history to this, and it's not a pretty history. Uh, but it's not – I am far from convinced that responding to past wrongs in the fashion that some Democrats favor would make the, situ make the situation any better. Uh, it might well make it worse. Uh, but I think we also have to ask ourselves a larger question. And that is, why has the court reached the point where uh, this kind of intense controversy uh, over its makeup 
uh, appears to be the stuff of daily commentary. And here's my answer, which is not going to make everybody on this podcast happy. Uh, the court has ended up in the middle of a very intense culture war. Uh, it didn't have to be this way. It has chosen to put itself in the middle of this culture war. Uh, and I think that when the history of this period is written, uh, historians may well judge that it was a tremendous institutional mistake to assume that every cultural controversy has a constitutional response. I think we would do well to consider the possibility that there are important, deeply divisive, and ardently debated issues where the Constitution is simply silent on the question. Uh, and in my judgment, if the court practiced a policy of jurisprudential abstention or restraint and allowed the political process to work uh, more than it has in recent decades, uh, we might not reach national uniformity on all of these questions, but not every dispute would turn into a matter of Exist, uh, of existential crisis for both political parties. Uh, I don't see. I don't see that the court situation is going to get any better as long as the court persists in plunging into these disputed cultural issues when it is possible to avoid them. Uh, hey, can I, Mona? Can I add something here? Oh, sure. Uh, um, so. Uh, Bill is right, but there's an additional twist in this, which is this court's deep hostility to voting rights, um, which we saw first expressed uh, in the Shelby County decision, um, but we've seen it in others. We've seen it on the campaign finance front um, when uh, Citizens United came up as a very narrow uh, as-applied case and Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy decided, even though uh, it wasn't on the docket, to step back and rehear it and bring it up in the broadest sense and throw out uh, law that had been in place since 1907. Um, we saw it in, uh, we've seen it in other places, and we saw that at least four justices are ready to say that sta in states, only legislatures will have authority over their, uh, the selection of electors, which could put us back uh, in many cases uh, to a nightmare uh, that could have occurred in a much deeper way uh, in 2020. Uh, so we're not just looking at uh, issues of cultural divide, which are big and important ones. We're also looking at the possibility of very radical changes. And if this Congress is able to pass a new Voting Rights Act uh, and something broader on voting rights, it wouldn't surprise me at all that uh, we would have a court with five or six justices that would throw it out, even though the Constitution very clearly says that Congress has the authority to uh, regulate uh, the time, manner, and place of federal elections. Okay, four quick points. Uh, first, in response to uh, you, Norm, I would just note that um, this this court uh, was the very one, well, not this court in the exact composition, but um, declined to find Obamacare unconstitutional, right? Even though a lot of conservatives were hoping that that would happen, praying that would happen. This, this did not court happen. would do it. Um, well, we, we don't know that for sure. But in any case, that's one, one point. Second point, uh, following up on, um, on Bill's point. Um, uh, the, uh, it, I agree. It isn't just that the, con that the court has stepped in to take on these big cultural issues, but that, of course, the Congress has sort of shoveled things in the direction of the judiciary because they don't want to take responsibility for taking on uh, their own, their own um, uh, role in, in making policy. They much prefer that the courts do it, especially when those matters are uh, very fraught politically and, and socially. Um, uh, but yes, you're, I, I completely agree that uh, not everything is a, is a matter of constitutional moment. Um, and I'm reminded that Justice Scalia used to have a stamp in his office, well, he claimed to have a stamp anyway, that said uh, for, for laws that came up for consideration, stupid yet constitutional. Okay, so that's <laughs> that can be a thing, you know. The, the 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 people can make stupid laws sometimes, but um, 
And finally, I would just uh, note um, that I agree also with Bill that this was a really interesting and good, important speech by Justice Breyer. But there may be one unintended effect, and that is there's been a lot of talk over the last few weeks since Biden became president that uh, maybe this would be a great time for Justice Breyer to step down because he could be <laughs> he could be uh, replaced by a Democratic president. But having just issued a ringing call not to regard the court and as a political body, for him to do that now in light of this speech would seem uh, a little bit of a contradiction. So that is a little wrinkle. All right. Let us turn now to um, the other announcement that we heard this week from the president, we, that all American troops will be leaving Afghanistan by September 11th. 2021. Nice date, round date, Linda. Um, is this a repetition, as some people are arguing, of the uh, withdrawal from Iraq uh, that some people say um, Obama was mistaken to have done, that it, that it led to the rise of ISIS? Well, I, I hope not. Um, you know, I have very mixed feelings about this. Um, I, you know, I worry about the one half of the population of Afghanistan that is female, all of the young girls who've been able to benefit from education over the last 20 years, who may in fact uh, face a future in which that education is no longer available, certainly not uh, as universally as uh, the United States tried to make it available. Uh, in Afghanistan. So I do worry about that. But I will say one of the things that the Obama administration seems to be doing it, um, Biden. I'm Biden. sorry, the Biden administration seems to be doing a bit uh, better, perhaps, than uh, President Obama did uh, in withdrawing from Iraq, was to make sure that we um, reposition some of our forces in ways that allow us to uh, keep track of what's going on in Afghanistan, that, that whether we put them in Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, or Uzbekistan, or wherever, um, that we are not going to see the kind of rise uh, of al-Qaeda, which um, you know, was how we got involved in uh, in Afghanistan in the first place. Uh, but also, you know, I think that it um, it would allow us to have you know some uh, ability that if things went south very quickly, um, that we you know might uh, get involved again. And uh, if not, you know through invading or an actual war, but that there are, you know, actions short of that that can be taken. But I think it's a very sad day. And what, what is most disheartening to me is to read some of the op-eds and hear some of the statements being made by uh, former servicemen uh, and women who feel like our sacrifices there may have been uh, for naught. Uh, we lost, uh, what, 2,500 lives, mm -hmm. um, you know, not to mention the tens of thousands of lives that were lost, uh, civilian lives that were lost. Uh, and we spent a great deal of uh, money uh, in Afghanistan. And here we go again, sort of leaving as we have many places in, of conflict in, in uh, modern American history, not least of which uh, Vietnam, uh, where you sort of wonder, was it worth it? What did we ultimately accomplish? So I, it's a sad day for me. Um, Bill Galston, most recent estimate is that we spent about $52 billion on the war in Afghanistan in 2019, something like a trillion dollars since, uh, uh, since 2001. Um, total casualties, total deaths, 2,354, wounded 20,000. Um, are, um, are you concerned that, uh, as the uh, intelligence report that was released this week from the U.S. government said, that uh, the uh, government in, in Kabul will struggle to hold the Taliban at bay if we withdraw. And by the way, NATO is withdrawing with us. So we have about 2,500 troops there now, and NATO has another 9,600. So they would all be withdrawing. Yeah, look, I have long believed that there were 
two coherent positions uh, that were consistent with the facts on the ground. Position number one, to withdraw. Position number two, to tell the American people that we would remain in Afghanistan with at least a modest force indefinitely, that we could not win the war, uh, but we could prevent the Taliban from taking over the country. In other words, we would be a, for all we know, open-ended, permanent garrison uh, in Afghanistan. We managed to pick the third option, and that is pretending that we were on the road to some sort of victory year after year after year when it should have been obvious to everyone that it was a stalemate. And successive presidents refused to bite the bullet and choose a coherent option. Instead, they resorted to obfuscation. And while they obfuscated, we spent more and more money there were more and more deaths and more and more injuries in, you know, pursuing a policy uh, that was never explained to the American people because it couldn't be explained to the American people because president after president refused to make a clean decision. Well, Biden has made a decision, uh, and the consequences may very well be what the pessimists say. Uh, but if the country was not willing to endure a permanent garrisoning of Afghanistan, uh, then this was the only coherent alternative. I would make a second point since Vietnam came out, it came up. We compounded our error in Vietnam by cutting off military assistance to the South Vietnamese government soon after we left. We should not make that mistake again. There is no logical connection between withdrawing our troops on the one hand and withdrawing military support on the other. And even if we do the former, as the president has decided we should, we should not do the latter. Right. Well, we won't have uh, one thing now that we had in the Vietnam era, which was one party believing that we had been on the wrong side of history uh, and that uh, any continuing support to the South Vietnamese government was only perpetuating the, um, uh, the, the side that, that deserved to lose. So that will well, presumably not be the case now. Well, I'll go further than that, Mona. Okay. Uh, I was, you know, in, in an era in which the two political parties were bitterly divided on just about everything, it was really striking the way the language of endless wars became the lingua franca for a lot of people in both political parties. Yes. And, yeah, and Trump, I think, astonished his party and then the country you know, by adopting the rhetoric of endless wars and stupid wars as his own. Yeah, that, I completely agree, and it was stunning to see how quickly the Republican Party fell in line with that when they had been opposing it for, I don't know, 60 years. Incredible. Um, all right. Um, now, on the, along those lines, Damon, um, Senator Jean Shaheen, uh, Democrat, New Hampshire, came out against this withdrawal, um, as did um, Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney said wars don't end when one side abandons the fight. Uh, and uh, that, you know, or as um, Secretary Mattis said in another context, the enemy gets a vote. So um, there is some bipartisan uh, worry about this move. Yeah, um, I, I'm not concerned about that in the present, but I am very concerned about it in the future when uh, what I think is probably uh, pretty close to a fait accompli happens, which is that the Taliban take back over. I mean, I'm in favor. I, I have no objection to Bill suggesting we continue 
military support for the government in Kabul, but we should do so very much aware that the weapons we give them are very likely to end up in the hands of the Taliban when they take over, which they probably are going to do once we aren't there anymore. I don't know how quickly, but I would be actually not surprised if it happens pretty fast, like within the next couple of months after we're gone. Uh, they've been remarkably successful at gobbling up large chunks of the country with us there, let alone once we're out of the country. And that is, I think, actually, and I actually just filed and posted a, a column today, Thursday, before we went on the air today on this very subject, that, you know, it might seem like Biden uh, agonized a lot about this policy, and I'm sure he did to some extent, and it goes all the way back to Obama agonizing about it and then having his own surge there and then not committing to pulling out and then Trump claiming he wants to pull out but never actually accomplishing it because he can't make his own government listen to his orders. And now Biden saying we're going to be gone by the anniversary of September 11th this year. That's a lot of agonizing. But the, the fact is that is much easier. That has been much easier than what is going to happen if and when the Taliban take over the country. And then this country, which actually really does want to do good in the world, um, I think there is going to be a kind of spasm of self-examination and recrimination when and if that happens, um, because we're going that that's when all these issues that, that Linda brought up and, and others have been talking about in passing really are going to hit home um, this notion that we spent a trillion dollars and 20 years and 2,000-something American soldiers' lives for for nothing at all. Now, of course, it hasn't been nothing at all. This is all a function of the fact that we went there to basically to capture bin Laden and, and decapitate al-Qaeda, and then because the Taliban wouldn't turn him over to us to get rid of the Taliban government that existed 20 years ago. But only over the years did the mission creep up to become what it became, which was essentially turning the country into a liberal democracy. And it turned out that we we sort of accomplished that, except it only could work if we maintained a garrison there, as, as Bill said. The fact is that, uh, you know, if, if for that to be judged, to, for it to be judged a success that we turned Afghanistan into a liberal democracy, part of that would have to be that they can be an independent nation taking care of themselves within reason. Yeah, they need military support. We'll offer that. But to have a permanent garrison spending 10 to $20 billion a year in perpetuity as the precondition of them having a functioning liberal democratic government is is not really a sustainable position in my view. And so here we are, but the end result I think is gonna be ugly. And the ramifications of that for our foreign policy, how we decide where to go, will we go back into Afghanistan as Obama had to in Iraq after he had left? Um, are we gonna look for another place to expiate our sins? Uh, it, it, it's, it's gonna be rocky. Uh, so I, I do not look forward to seeing those events unfold as I think and fear they will. Uh, Norm, this this problem um, sort of illustrates one of the reasons that, that Trump's rhetoric was so absurd. You know, for him, everything was a matter of stupidity. That is, you know, previous leaders had just been too dumb to handle, you know, these problems and that uh, he would uh, he would do better, um, which is, you know, of course, risible. But um, arguably, there are no good options regarding Afghanistan or indeed involving al Qaeda. I mean, um, we did succeed in in uh, cap, you know, killing bin Laden, and apparently last year we killed uh, one of his sons. Um, the uh, the Trump administration was able to um, was able to take out al Baghdadi, uh, who was of course ISIS. Um, but it's still the fact that um, Al Qaeda today is present in more countries than it was on 9/11, and uh, it is by no means a spent force. I mean, Al Shabaab in Africa is the most active part of it, and it's still quite, quite deadly. Um, 
so uh so what was your sense about the uh the you know wisdom of pulling out of afghanistan uh, you know, I think like uh, everybody else, um, I had mixed feelings, um, you know, if uh, and when the Taliban take over. Um, a lot of the things that have been done, I, I would hesitate before calling Afghanistan a liberal democracy, but it is a more liberal society with rights for women and children. And those will disappear again, and it could be uh, bloody and just awful. Um, at the same time, uh, the government is weak and divided and corrupt, and nothing that we've done has changed that. Uh, we have gone through enormous efforts over uh, almost 20 years to train a military. Uh, are they going to be ready? And if not, is it possible even to do that? Uh, you know, the, the other uh, misgiving that I had, uh, there's a very interesting column by Jeff Stein about how this is going to create a real dilemma for the CIA. We're going to lose a listening post that's very important for that entire region. There are going to be costs to this. And my only question, though, is whether there was a, uh, a half measure, a way of keeping some training forces there, not just providing some military support, um, but that would ratchet down even further what we have. And I accept uh, Joe Biden's judgment on this front. The other... Uh, Point, I guess, uh, as you were talking, Mona, I thought, you know, Trump, we know, had uh, contempt for the military leadership and in a lot of ways for the military itself, despite all of the sweet talk about veterans and military leaders. For Biden, there is a personal element here because his son, Bo, served in Afghanistan and was in the line of fire there. And I think that's uh, had an impact on the way he looks at all of this. Uh, there's going to be a, a price to be paid for doing this, but I'm not sure there was a better way out. Um, uh, I know our military leaders tried to find a half measure, and maybe a half measure would be worse than what we're talking about doing now. And we should also add that there's an elegance to doing this on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, that 20 years uh, is enough to establish whatever we could establish there, and then it'll be on them to try and maintain some freedom. Okay. Um, I would just like to um, recommend for those who are interested a, a great novel called A Thousand Splendid Sons by the author of The Kite Runner, uh, Khaled Hosseini, uh, which deals with uh, the plight of women in Afghanistan. And there are aspects of that book that I really can never forget. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're, they're very moving. Um, and I'm thinking about all of those women uh, in particular uh, now. All right. Um, let us now turn to our final segment where we make recommendations or draw attention to something that we think needs it. Linda, let's start with you. So my recommendation this week is uh, for an article that appeared in Quillette. It was about the firing, which we've talked about on the show a few weeks ago, of a George couple of Georgetown University professors. Uh, this article was written by Lama Abu Oday, and she talks about what is happening as a takeover of the universities. Progressive liberals, she said, have created a minoritarianism of progressive ideology. She calls adherence to the ideology the pro progressoriate, and she goes on to describe what's happening on campus as a kind of Maoist revolution. So I highly recommend uh, this article. Okay, thank you. Bill Galston. Well, I, as I guess the listeners of this podcast have figured out by now, uh, I'm sort of a, uh, a public opinion nut. Uh, <laughs> and uh, – but I, I believe in it up to a point. So I want to put three numbers on the table from a survey released just yesterday by the Quinnipiac organization. Number one is the number 29. That's the percent of Americans who think that Joe Biden is doing a good job handling the border crisis. Uh, I hope very much that the administration you know, takes – uh, this public judgment seriously and really works much, much harder 
to come up with a coherent plan for the border that it can explain to the American people. Uh, here's number here's no, uh, number number two, 45. That's the percentage of Republicans surveyed who said that they would not take the vaccine. Uh, that is a sad commentary uh, on a on a once great political party. <sighs> what on earth? Number number th- number number three, 48. That's the percentage of Americans who think that Biden is proposing to spend too much. Uh, and there's a lot more to come. I am worried, you know, as a supporter of this administration, that unless some of this is tempered, uh, that Biden will lose public support for many of the legitimate things that he wants to do. Okay, thank you. Um, Damon. Well, uh, this is in a way a follow-up on a recommendation I made a couple of months ago. There was a a New York Times Magazine profile of the novelist Kazuo Ishiguro, and uh, I plugged that profile as being worth reading and very interesting about the author who uh, won the Nobel Prize a few years ago, and I greatly admire. And he has a new novel out that was the occasion for that profile, and I have now read it, and I am here to officially endorse the novel as well. It's titled Clara and the Sun, and uh, it really is just fabulous. Um, it's it's subtle and quiet and very much not the kind of book that uh, gets a lot of splashy attention in our moment, but it is very much worth your time. It's a, a moving uh, portrait of our world uh, that is so often in Ishiguro's work uh, in, in books of his, uh, like Never Let Me Go, uh, that, that portray uh, aspects of our world that uh, are uncomfortable to face, uh, and he highlights certain aspects of them and enhances them so that we can think about them clearly. It's a, a reflection on what human beings are, uh, what artificial life might be, uh, and uh, and also the the consequences of meritocracy, not so much on uh, economic sides of life, but on what it does to the human soul. Uh, so I very much recommend it. Again, the title is Clara and the Sun. Thank you for that, Norman Ornstein. So I would uh, uh, come back uh, a little bit to the filibuster issue that you've talked about before. Um, What I hope will happen in the coming weeks is that uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will heed uh, some of the things that Joe Manchin has been saying about returning to the regular order and trying to find ways for bipartisan compromise. Give it a chance. Bring up the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Have hearings and a pretty open amendment process. Do something similar with the infrastructure bill. Uh, do it with a broader democracy uh, package. Do it with a, a comprehensive immigration reform proposal. See if by opening up this process, uh, Manchin is right, and do it, of course, with a uh, background check bill, uh, that there are 10 or more Republicans who are willing to work with Democrats. I'm frankly skeptical. And in the aftermath of that, I hope they turn not to abolishing the filibuster, but to restoring it to uh, something where the burden is on the minority uh, that can bring things to a halt for a period of time and make its case. My idea for a long time has been that you shift the burden from 60 required to end debate to 41 required to continue uh, debate and uh, let them bear that burden. And then I think we would be able to move some more things through with what is a fairly tight timeline for significant policy action for uh, the Biden administration. Okay, thank you. I would like to recommend a piece by Dr. Sally Sattel that appears in the spring edition of National Affairs Magazine. It's called The Truth About Painkillers. Dr. Sattel is a psychiatrist. She treats um, people with opioid and other kinds of addictions and among other patients. 
and she's written a very, very careful and uh, and very important piece talking about how our uh, misconceptions about addiction have led to unnecessary suffering, specifically the idea that um, people were prescribed painkillers after a surgical procedure and then became accidentally addicted. And she points out that that almost never happens. It's vanishingly rare that addiction uh, is usually uh, uh, preceded. You know, people who get uh, addicted are also taking other substances. And um, when you radically re uh, restrict how much doctors can give pain medicine, then people who are genuinely, people who are in, in physical pain don't get the, the help that they need. And those who are in emotional pain aren't getting the kind of uh, proper care that they need as well. And so she has a number of excellent um Excellent proposals, um, so highly recommended. The Truth About Painkillers, Dr. Sally Sattel. And we want to thank Norman Ornstein for joining us. Thank you one and all for listening. We will be back next week as every week.